My name is Erin Nasmith. I am a women's shepherd here at Christ Central Church. Um, I'm also a member of the Plaza Midwood community group. And I'm here to read scripture this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 19, 22, and 23. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed, who we anointed over us is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, you are not my bone, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. The king went on to Gilgal and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king and in David, we also have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, 
the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all, are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Something dropped. I'm going to pick that up. All right. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of uh, the assistant pastors here at Christ Central Church. And today, as you heard the scripture read over you, we're concluding our sermon series in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Um, and I have the privilege of wrapping everything up, as Pastor Howard reminded me last week, to not leave anyone on the base, bringing all of them home. And I'm going to try to do that. And as I thought about this first and second sermon series, uh, Samuel sermon series that we did, we preached 44 sermons in this. 44 sermons in this. And do you know when we began? Last March, when the pandemic began. And there were times when the pastoral body got together and thought, perhaps with the, the events that are happening in our nation today, in our world today, perhaps we should pause from speaking on first and second Samuel and do something else. And as many times we thought about doing that, we were stopped and we saw God continue to work through each passage in this sermon series to speak to everything that has happened this past year. And in many ways, we saw God work through this passage within the lives of our church to speak to us. And Pastor Howard and Pastor Mari, who's at home, thank you for your faithfulness in preaching the text to us. We at the church believe in preaching through the bodies of the text like this to give you the scripture as the word of God is the authority in our lives. When we read a good book or watch a good movie, what we remember most about a story or a movie or a book are the highlights or the climax of the story. And oftentimes when we think about the movies and stories to tell the person, we talk about, did you see that scene when this thing happened? Do you remember when that happened in the story? And if we were to tie together two books together as a movie or a book, perhaps a lot of us will talk about these events as the highlights of the second, first and second Samuel. Perhaps it's the rise of the Samuel the prophet. The great prophet now speaks. Perhaps it is the story about the rise of this David culminating in the victory of Goliath, a story that many of us remember from our childhood. Perhaps 
It is a shocking, tragic story of the fall of David as he rapes a woman and kills another man. Or more recently, as we heard last week, perhaps it's a story about David's inability to stand for justice and be absent as an absent father in a family. Perhaps those things come to your mind. And when we get to today's text, it's kind of like an epilogue of a story. Right? It's all wrapped up, and we're looking at the end words, the last words. And if you're like me, oftentimes I kind of skim through that. Um, I often don't think about what happened. I only think about the climax. But what this epilogue shows us is not only the resolution of David's life, but it also gives us a glimpse of what is to come. And I think these days, we actually like the end of the movie, especially in the Marvel movies, because we stay toward the end, because at the end, it gives you a glimpse of what is to come next. And this chapter that we read today does exactly that. Not only it wraps up the life of David, but it gives us a glimpse of what is to come in the future. And it makes us long for someone, something to come, Hence, the title of the message is Awaiting the King as we wrap up this text. And what I want to invite us to do today is not look at an in-depth study into a chapter. There's a lot here, a lot we skimmed over in the last couple of chapters. But what I want us to do as we wrap up this sermon series is look back at all the things that we learned this past year in the life of David and the truth that we have learned together along with David this past year, as we wait the coming king. And the three truths that we learned this past year through these two books are that God will never give up, that God will deliver, and that God will rescue. Again, God will never give up, God will deliver, and God will ultimately rescue. First truth that we learned is that God will never give up on us. God never gives up on David. I love this description of grace from Pastor Charlie Dates. He said, God's grace anticipates our rebellion, and yet it ensures our salvation. God knows what you're made of, he says. He anticipates you will not fully cooperate from time to time, yet his grace is so severe, even though he knows you'll act a fool time to time. His grace barricades you so that he ensures you won't ruin his plan for your life. And that's the grace we see playing out in the life of King David. Grace that anticipates. Grace that does not give up regardless of the failures and the attempts that David has on his life. David, in chapter 19, returns to the throne, as we read, but not without his share of the drama. One may say it's a consequence of the actions of running away from the throne instead of fighting for it here. But there's a debate that's happening as we get to chapter 19 of, should we bring him back? And David almost had to appeal to them and say, remember who I am? Am I not your own flesh to his own tribe of Judah? And even later on, as he gets to the tribes together, 
Israelites and now the, uh, the Judah are fighting among themselves saying, wait, 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 I get more honor in bringing him back. This bickering that's happening again and again. Verse 9 says, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. And there's more and more and more drama that is coming in this way. And we, perhaps you might say, rightly so. Because when we get to chapter 19, we don't find a war hero, triumphant, Goliath-slaying hero is gone. Gone are the days when David is hailed as a king that is able to slay 10,000 Philistines compared to thousands for Saul. Gone are the days when a king who is at the front of the battle fighting, leading the man against the foes of Israelites. But we find the man who is hiding behind, running away from the throne, betraying and being betrayed, driven out by his own son and the kingdom that is torn. If ever there was a time for us to say or God to say, well, this is it. David, you had a good run, but now the next big thing must come and replace you with something else. Perhaps this is the moment we have tried and seen David not living up to the hype that he came to the kingship with. Perhaps this is a time to give up on King David. But what we see in this text today is that God does not give up on him. And his story continues on. And it's not like the first time that happened, right? And it's not like this is a one mistake David makes and God says, okay, I'll give you a second chance. We've seen it again and again through the past couple of weeks that he's a David who first, adultery, rape, murder, absent fatherhood, lack of justice, you name it. He struck out time and time again. He was put to the crucible, tested, and found wanting, not fulfilling. By any human standards, he has not carried out his duties as a king. But notice that throughout chapter 19, no matter there's a bickering of the people in this text, there's back and forth between the tribes. You see even David appealing and trying to come back to the throne. What we read time and time again, if you listen carefully throughout chapter 19, David is consistently called the king. King David. King is coming back. King comes to the throne. The rightful king is coming back to Jerusalem, to the city of David, where he belongs, where the presence of God dwells. Even despite dangers to the throne, not only in the previous narratives of the political bickering, but in the very next chapter, there's rebellion that happens in chapter 20, even when he comes back to the throne. But even that rebellion is put down, and the chapter after that against Philistines, again, David is not pushed out from the throne, and we see God not giving up on King David. And the question is, why doesn't God give up on David? Why would God not say, this is enough, let me move on? And perhaps the easy answer for us to say is, remember 2 Samuel 7, when God said, your throne will be everlasting. Your throne will be everlasting. Surely, God will continue the line of David. 
So the simple answer is, yes, God promised David that he will not give up. And he does not give up. But embedded in that truth is that God will not only give up on David, but God will not give up on himself. Meaning his grace is so severe, it will save David against himself. Despite David's failures, time and time again, we see that God's promise, God's grace ensures that David's sin will not deter God's plan for humanity. Church, that's the grace that we find, that we found throughout these two great books. And what we remember this morning is that same grace, the same gospel truth, the good news of the salvation is our story as well. That this is our grace ultimately illustrated in God, unending, undivided, never giving up love for those who are his own. This is the grace story, the greatest love story that you and I belong to. My wedding song that Lynn and I chose, more like Lynn chose, because <laughs> uh, I'm really bad at music or listen to music that much, and she picked the song and shared it with me. I loved it. It became our wedding song. It's called I Won't Give Up On Us, um, I believe by Jason Mraz. And the lyrics go something like this. It's, I won't sing it for you, trust me. I'll save you from that. It says, I won't give up on us, even if the skies get rough. I'm giving you all my love. I'm still looking up. I'm still looking up. Well, I won't give up on us. No, I'm not giving up. God knows I'm tough. I am tough. He knows I'm loved. We got a lot to learn. We're alive. We're loved. God knows we're worth it. And we're worth it. And when first my wife shared this song with me, first thought that came to my mind was, that's theologically incorrect. No, that's not what I told her, but I was thinking that in my mind. Because the last line gets me, right? It says, God knows we're worth it, and we're worth it. All right. Makes sense, in some sense. But more theologically correct way to say is, yes, God knows we're worth it. Not because you and I are so worth it. It's not like God tests you and we're like, oh, you're worth this. That's why I will not give up on you. Theological correct terms is, yes, God knows we're worth it. Not because we're so worth it in his eyes, but because he decided to put that worth in us. Therefore, we're worth it in his eyes and he won't give up on us. God places that value in David and God places that value in us. And you know what that means? Staying with the marriage illustration, again, not only to speak the married couples here, but the Bible speaks of the marriage as a picture of the gospel. So I'm using Jesus' examples here. Pastor Howard recently reminded Pastor Derek and I of this during our pastoral meeting. He shared with us by saying that marriage allows us to pursue our wives. Meaning not that we pursue in order to get married, but marriage frees us, allows us to pursue in ways that frees us because we're loved, accepted, and freed. 
And I believe that's the same in our relationship with the Lord. To know that we are secure in His love for us. The fact that He anticipates my failures and my sin time and time again, despite my failures, knowing that God still will not give up on us, just like David, that he consistently pursues after us. He loves us, embraces us, and brings us back to him, gives us confidence to consistently, with conviction, to return to the Lord, to pursue after him over and over again. Are you running away this morning? One of the biggest heartaches I have as a pastor who often sees shepherding ministries in our church is when things happen in the life of someone, whether you're confronted by your sin or the sin of someone else, what we tend to do is we actually run away from the Lord rather than run to the Lord. And consistently what we hear, what I hear, and I find myself doing that too, so I'm not just condemning you, all of us, is that oftentimes we do not want to go deeper in our brokenness. We don't want God to come and embrace our brokenness. I think what sin does first and foremost is to blind our eyes to the loving gaze of our Father. And we try to hide. It's written in Genesis chapter First couple chapters, right? God seeks after Adam, but he hides. May we remember that God's grace this morning is greater than our failures. Our grace anticipates our fallings. And our grace is big enough to not give up on us. That's the truth we learn through our first and second Samuel. Second truth that we learn is that God not only does not give up on us, but God will ultimately deliver us. God will deliver us. Pastor Rich uh, Viodas, speaking on sin and addiction, wrote, instead of saying, just stop it, repent of your sin, we do better to say, well, you figure out how to stay alive. You learn how to soothe your pain, but this way doesn't go deep enough. This is not good enough. Let's try something else. And of course, he's referring to the only deeply engaged life with God. Only when you taste the goodness of the Lord, God will deliver one's addiction from sin. God is the only one that can go deep enough to quench the thirst of addiction in your heart. What we find in King David's life, in all the stories that we read and in all the stories we heard about, in all the chapters we read, is not only his faithfulness and the greatest accomplishment, not only the great victories of David, the great things we learned, the great war acts that he has done, great enemies that he has defeated, it's not only the greatest accomplishments. But here's a man who has fallen and is wrestling with sin and addiction all throughout his life, right? So when we get to chapter 22, this is a poem, a song that he writes, and he's known for this. This book of Psalms, many book of Psalms is written by him. 
And this chapter 22 is later adopted as corporate song in Psalm 18, where he's leading his Israelites to sing this song. So we do not only see a great song of deliverance, but his own testimony. That's what we read in chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies, from the hands of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the name of the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. This is a great song of deliverance from all his enemies. And we met them throughout First and Second Samuel. Enemies like Philistines, and seemingly impossible foe named Goliath. God delivers him out of the hands and the grasp of Philistines. We also saw King Saul filled with jealousy, hatred, going after the life of David again and again and again for 10 years, desiring to kill him. But every time David was pushed against the wall, God delivers him. We also saw his son Absalom, who wins the hearts of his own nation under him and threatens to take David's kingdom away. But we found out last week that God does not let that happen and delivers him from hands of Absalom and the kingdom being torn away. And even later on, right after this, in chapter 20, we see the internal rebellion, civil war that happens, insurrection that rises, and God still delivers him from his enemies. And all the battles, all the battles David had to fight, we see one truth, consistent truth again and again. That God was his rock, his fortress, his deliverance, the rock in whom he takes refuge. And surely this song is about the enemies that he has defeated. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But not only we saw the enemies that went against them physically, but have we also not seen the battles that David, David fought, King David fought, were not only the enemies outside of the kingdom, but the battle that was raising within his own heart, sin that encroached him, sin that entangles him, sin that often engulfed him, and the consequences that he had to face in light of sin that he did. We see that he had to wrestle and fight through and be confronted with the adulterous, lustful heart that resulted in murder of his own soldier. We also saw a fearful father absent, complicit in injustice. Pride of a king in later chapters, which results in the death of 70,000 Israelites due to ill-advised census. You see, what makes King David a great king isn't that he was always victorious against the battle, against the enemies. But what makes King David a great king 
Instead, in his failures and in the moments of being found to be wanting, in his sin and his addiction, in the lapse of judgment and terrible actions, he does what verse 4 says again and again and again. Verse 4 of chapter 22 says, He called upon the name of the Lord. He called, up, he called upon the name of the Lord every time, again and again and again, whenever he was fighting enemies from the outside as, as well as the enemies within. And the Hebrew word for called upon the name of the Lord, as well as its equivalent word in Greek, both often is used in the context of crying out in prayer, as well as crying out in worship to the Lord. Meaning, when he's calling upon the name of the Lord, it's a prayer of surrender, of saying, God, I can't do this. I am broken. Take not that, that God's spirit away from me. Restore unto me the joy of salvation. Here is God, here is a king that's seeking God's grace and his deliverance. And the book of Psalm, the songbook, the book of worship is full of times. This very king cries out against both physical enemies that are visible as well as invisible enemies, the hard struggles of sin in repentance again and again and again and again. Here is a leader that is not perfect, but here is a king who is repentant. And the question is, how many of us really do this? How often... Your life, your Christianity, your following of Christ, shaped by heart of repentance. Heart that prostrates before the Lord and says, God, I have failed. I have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. Not only in my personal relationship with the Lord, but in my relationship with others, especially my family, my church members, my neighbors, in my workplaces. How often have we fallen before the Lord, repented of our sin? How often we use the songs like this as a taunting cry of saying, God, deliver me from all my enemies. Look at me. I'm on the right side of God and you're not. But how often God longs for you and I to fall prostrate before the Lord and repent of our own sins, to see the brokenness within and call out to the Lord for deliverance. Dr. Barbara Peacock, whom we will learn more about in coming month from Pastor Howard. In her book, Soul Care in African-American Practice, writes, prayer is a healing agent to every ailment. It is a key to effective spiritual direction. It is a source of our hope. It is a directive to freedom. It is soul care. It is balm in Gilead, referring to Jeremiah 8.22. Simply put, the most important tool for equipping, empowering, advancing the kingdom of God is the tool of prayer. I love that. Right? Do you see the last line when she says, the most important tool for equipping, empowering, and advancing the kingdom of God is the tool of prayer. Do you notice that? King David is not known for battle tactics. He did not write a psalm book on how to defeat his enemies. 
He did not, absolutely not, wrote a book on marital fidelity, right? <laughs> he, he should not write that, right? He did not even write about how to raise your own child. Like, that, that's terrible, right? He did not write that. He didn't even write about how to be a wise king. He was far from that. But what he's known for is the book of Psalms. Oftentimes, a book that's filled with emotions, God-wrenching brokenness, raw, bare before all his people, saying, look at me, look at my sin. And you know, he's telling this to the next generation. I'm saying, hey, let me tell you about my life. Not about all the great things I've done, but okay, that's good. But let me tell you about my life. Uh, I killed somebody. Let me tell you about what the, that time I counted all my people, and 70,000 people have died because I counted my people, right? Because God did not want me to. He tells the people, but in the midst of being bare before others, shamed perhaps in the, in the eyes of our world today, broken, honest, open, he finds ultimate acceptance, deliverance by the hands of God. Surely that's where we begin this morning. You know what the pandemic does to us? And I realize I could easily do this too. So I'm with you in this. So easy to hide. So easy to cover up my struggles. So easy to push away being exposed, being open, being honest. So easy to blame something else, to say, I am too wrapped up in this. I cannot, I cannot handle this. The Bible tells us you cannot. <laughs> you cannot handle your sin. That's why it beckons us to repent, beckons us to open up our hearts, beckons us to invite others to see who we are and see the Lord who delivers us. May we see his loving arms this morning. The final thing that we learn is not only that God will not give up on this kingdom, God will rescue, uh, God will deliver, or bring ultimate deliverance, but the final thing is that God will rescue. God will bring ultimate rescue to his people. In light of Martin Luther King Jr.'s day, a couple weeks back, I was reminded of a book by David Chappell, A Stone of Hope. A Stone of Hope is a book that David Chappell writes that talks about, despite the complicity and the relatively weak resolve of the Northern liberals during the Civil Rights era, and the backdrop of a strong segregation of movement at the time in the South, civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders believed that as Hebrew prophets believed, that despite the seemingly impossible odds, their call was to assimilar to a prophet, to stand apart and speak of a stone of hope and knowing that God will rescue. Stone of hope that God will rescue. That's what we see in chapter 23. Is David now, in 23, takes on the role of a prophet. Prophet is the one who brings the word of God. And that's what he says in chapter 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words, final words of David, the oracle of David. And verse 2 says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. 
His word is a my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, order in all things secure, for he or he not cause to prosper, and my help and my desire. Therein lies the promise David wants to leave the next generation. And it's not only of this next generation that will come after him, but the generations to come even after that. And one thing David put all his hope on is not how large his kingdom is. It's not about all the victories that he has been done before, but the hope that he places upon is verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. And as I read through the rationale on why he leaves this oracle as his final words, perhaps the word that comes to my mind is legacy. And we like that word, don't we? We like leaving legacy. We talk about leaving legacy. And yes, as a flawed but a chosen man, here he wants to remind the coming generation of God's promise, a covenant that through his family, God will carry out his plan, the legacy of his kingship. Although there are failures along the way, God will keep his everlasting covenant. Amen. And that's absolutely true. But more so than that, I believe what King David here is writing and leaving is not only that of his legacy, but what he gives is hope. Hope of the coming king who will rescue in the line of David through a promised king to come. You could queue up the picture. Um, I have this book that's given to me. Uh, it's a family book at that. Uh, we call this Chokpo in Korean. Uh, what it has is the names of my forefathers. And then when I ask my mom, how far does it go back? It goes back to like, the back in the days when there were four nations divided in Korea and all the stuff I learned when I was really young. Um, incredible. I can't read any of the words because they're not actually in Korean. It's in actually old, old Chinese. Um, and there's my father's name, there's my grandfather's name, and my great-grandfather's names on there. And ultimately, my name should be on there, and my son's name should be on there because it just gets passed down to the eldest son. So I'm the eldest son's eldest son's eldest son. And Seth, it will be eldest sons, you, know, you get the idea. This is kind of like the genealogy of the family. And when we read these names, and I could go back into all these names, I can't read all the names, and I see the names of different people that I never really got to meet. And behind each name are the stories. Some are terrible, I'm sure. Some are good. Quite often, it's a mixture of the two between even in the same name. Some actions are bad, some actions are good. And just like any other family, just like the family line of David, embedded in all these names, behind each name, is not only the legacy of the past failures, but the hope of the next generation. Hope that the next generation is better. The next generation brings more honor to the family Legacy of the Kim clan, but perhaps more fittingly, hope for the Kim family.
You see, as a Korean person, my family legacy wasn't just about me. It's about the family. So much so that the hope lies on the shoulders of the next generation. What I do today matters in the family clan of the Kim to bring honor, as they say, which is a real thing. Or again, better I can say, to bring hope to the family. Hope that through my descendants, through my line, family honor, hope will be brought. Why am I sharing this? Besides, I got a pretty cool ancient book in my library. Um, because we must remember that Bible is written from Eastern mindset, right? First and second Samuel is a story of a king who is an Israelite, brown-skinned Israelites. And last time I checked, Israel is in the continent of Asia. Middle East, catch that? East, right? East mindset. So in David's last words, we find his longing, his hope that the generation that is coming will hold on to his testimony one who judges in the fear of the Lord will stand. The next king carries that hope to bring honor, to bring hope to the line of David as it was promised to him. And what generation this is. We stop with the story of David. We're going to go into other books. But if you just continue on in this family, man, this family is messed up. There's so many failures, spectacular failures at that. Kingdom is divided. They're exiled so much so, king after king after king fails. You thought King David goofed? Just look at what other guy did afterwards. Some are so despised, despised in the eyes of the Lord, they're kicked out. But despite all that, here's David's hope. David's words, oracle, comes true. Or oh, I should say, God's promise does not end despite David and his descendants' failures. Because when we get to New Testament, in the very first words, Gospel of Matthew, you know what it says? The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Church, the promise is kept. Here is King Christ, King Jesus, who is promised in the line of David, the true and righteous king, the righteous ruler who judges justly, who brings spiritual prosperity to his people, his descendants. He brings the honor, ultimate hope, the true rescuer of God's own people. He is the chosen shepherd, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He will rescue you and I from our sin. He alone has the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel. That is grace. That is the message and the story of First and Second Samuel that we read. Not only church, David gets to look forward to this. Do you know that? But in the kingly line of David, as he looks for the honor, the scripture reminds us, those who place our faith in Christ, do you know you get to be included in this genealogy of the family? Revelation 35 talks about your name will be written in the book of life. Your name will be etched in the colors of history of God's kingdom forever. That's the grace. 
That's the message of the gospel. That's the invitation for you if you're not a follower of Christ this morning. Fellow heirs, recipients of this honor, this weightiness, the worth he places upon you because of what Christ has done. Church, are you looking for a king this morning? Not those worthless kings that gives you a small taste of pleasure, but the king who not only does not give up, who will not only deliver, who will rescue you out of your sin and give you life that's fulfilled in the ways you created to be. That's the gospel invitation. Let's pray. Pray, church, with me. For those who have not have received that hope, our hope is as you listen to First and Second Samuel, that you saw the gospel hope. And for those who place our faith in the Lord, let's live as the ones whose names are written in the book of life that frees us to pursue after our King. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. What a year it has been. What a year it continues to be. And Lord, just because we finished First and Second Samuel, the story doesn't end. You'll continue to speak to us as we see the King coming, the ultimate King, the King. Lord, we wrestle with our brokenness and our sin. Teach us not to run away. Teach us what it means to be bare before the Lord, be found wanting, but being filled with the weightiness of Christ above all. May that be true of us, all of us, for now and forevermore. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.